This podcast is for those making bold moves to reverse global warming. We are the determined ones, solving humanity's gnarliest challenges. It's a podcast on climate action, the determined mindset, and how standing out helps you make a meaningful impact. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Hey, pretty good, Mark. I'm excited to be here with our guest today. There are a ton of solutions to the climate crisis we hear about all the time, like recycling, reducing air travel, transitioning to renewable energy. But there are other interesting solutions we don't hear a lot about. One of those is biochar. And when we talk to people who understand the value of biochar, they are all about it, right? Like these people are super excited about biochar. So today we want to introduce you to Henrietta Moon, the CEO and co-founder of Carboculture, one of the leading producers of biochar, and find out what is so exciting about this innovative carbon technology. Hello, Henrietta. Hey. Thank you for <laughs> nice joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And you are in? I'm in Nairobi at the moment. Nairobi. In Kenya. Thank you so much for joining us from Nairobi, Kenya. That is amazing. <laughs> so let's dive in. I'm really excited to hear about carboculture and uh, a little bit of the science of biochar so people can understand what the heck it is and why we're all about it. And then we'll sure. talk a little bit about your journey. So to kick us off, you have a pretty big, hairy, audacious goal stated on your website. Can you talk about what your um, big, hairy, audacious goal is for carboculture? Yeah. So big, uh, hairy, audacious goal and everything else is one gigaton of carbon dioxide annually. And what that means is a billion tons of carbon dioxide drawdown. And now why that is super, super difficult to get to is that carbon dioxide exists in our atmosphere at too high levels, but at still parts per million. So trying to capture those parts per million, imagine trying to invent a solution or a technology that will capture those bits is very energy intense and very difficult. So what we're doing is leveraging biology because nature has photosynthesis already that knows how to capture parts per million and knows how to take in CO2 and turn it into trees and, and agricultural stuff. And we just convert that to stable carbon so it doesn't escape back into the atmosphere. It's a very, very big goal, but it's like our North Star that just guides what we do. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit kind of high level, or I don't know if you consider this high level, but I really want to understand the science of what biochar is explain it to us like we're eight-year-olds. At a very high level, you say we clean the air to heal the soils, which I think is a beautiful way to message it. Yeah, so I, th I think the first part to understand is like, how is the carbon captured? So in a normal, like without the biocarbon or biochar in the picture, trees draw down CO2 and then they keep it when they're alive. But when the trees die, or, or any biomass for that matter, when they die, they decompose, and 99% of that carbon is re-released into the atmosphere. And so it's like a cycle. It goes up, it comes down, etc. Hmm. But humans have put too much carbon in the atmosphere, uh, a few trillion tons too much, to be exact. And so we need to bring that carbon dioxide down. And now, instead of letting that 
those so those trees draw down the the carbon dioxide again and turn it into biomass and now we can turn that biomass into a different form that looks a lot like charcoal but is actually near pure carbon and so biochar is a way and there's a lot of different varieties of it but for the sake of it at least ours stays stable for over 1000 years so when we turn it into that carbon form there's no microbe or no organism that's going to come and munch it and turn it into greenhouse gases again but instead it'll be locked in that form for a very long time and that's why it's such a powerful climate mitigation tool Awesome. So it starts with biomass, which you're talking about as like trees. And I wondered on your website, it says forest and agriculture or industry yeah. waste. I wonder agricultural if it also, waste. yeah, could it also be food waste? Yeah. So, so we've been using, for example, walnut shells. So our demo facility is parked behind a nut processing factory. So oh, nuts cool. go to food, we get the shells. Otherwise That's they very would just circular. go. Yeah. So we've also used peach pits, what you don't mm-hmm. think are actually wood and these types of waste. So definitely the idea is not to chop down new forest by no means. It's, it's just to use waste products that are woody in, mm-hmm. in their okay. form. So it has to be woody biomass. And does this help prevent wildfires in California, like for example? Yes. When we get to scale, I would say, yes, that's a very big issue. Uh-huh. There's The agricultural waste is currently either openly burned or taken to biomass incineration facilities. So Central Valley in California that produces about half of the U.S. produce and a lot of the nuts in the world actually has one of the worst air qualities in the U.S. So a lot of this biomass is openly burned and and that's why we're there as well. So we can turn it into something more useful. But for the wildfires, that's our aspiration as well. In Mm -hmm. the future, to use some of that forest clearings or clearings from under the power lines, et cetera, that are like the critical areas, of course, we can use that. So so definitely in our scope. But but, but clearing the forest to actually get the biomass out is very, mm, it's very intense and it costs a lot. So that's Mm -hmm. not, that's why it's not being done as much. So so that's like another few steps away from where we are now. Yeah, I'm just, I'm like seeing, I'm already starting to be all about biochar. I'm starting to see places where it can um, (laughs) plug into this whole system of gaps and waste that we're producing and how that waste is causing issues all over the place. Other question, continuing the conversation as if we're eight years old, (laughs) would it just be as simple as just providing jobs to folks to then go out into maybe hard to reach areas to then pull that biomass out. Is that what you're talking about? How difficult it is to bring that up? Is it just people power or is it? That's why it's expensive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the forestry service actually has a couple of programs around this and what they're trying to do is do it on site. So really bring some equipment to the forest and do it on, on site because it's much more cost effective. And for us, the ideal scenario is that the biomass is deposited in one area. So typically like from a county, they might 
gather all the biomass that's under the power lines into one location, or in the case of food, of course, it's centralized. And so these little deposits are like where we try to be. And that's been quite good for us. So we're modular in size, I would say. So we have a kind of facility design where we can add more kind of like Lego bricks as to grow our capacity, but it's not that modular that we would put it on a trailer and uh, take it with a quad through the forest or something. <laughs> so instead of recycling centers, there would be soon someday bio ma- uh, biochar centers out there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So that's basically step one. It's already good for the environment because you're removing a source of air pollution, which would be burning this biomass waste otherwise. And then step two is processing that biomass. So I understand we've all heard that if you apply pressure to coal, you might get a diamond. But (laughs) (laughs) apparently when you apply pressure to biomass, you get coal. Charcoal? Yeah. So you have to heat up the biomass and, and how it's been done throughout the times, I guess, or for the past hundred years is like trying to externally heat the biomass without letting it burn. So without oxygen, if you just cook it, it it turns into carbon. That's one way of doing it. We have a little bit of a sort of, we tried to upgrade the process so that it would be capturing more of the carbon actually letting less out as tars or as gases. And so our process is like a a super rapid combustion through the material. And we get to a very high temperature, which turns the carbon into a very stable form. So so we're trying to do uh, something new that can elevate what's being done right now. Awesome. And does does it take a lot of energy to heat that biomass up? No, No, actually we use part of the energy that the biomass itself contains. So we lose some of the energy, so to say, what the woody waste would have, but we don't need external heat to run our process. And that's quite important as well. So in these kinds of like clean technology projects or carbon tech, as it's called now, we just went through this and it's called the life cycle analysis. So you have to look at the entire chain of what happens in the system and and what would have happened without the system. And I find that kind of like fun to to be working with biology and seeing all the all the kind of levers being taken up and down. Yeah, you're turbocharging nature, helping the natural carbon cycle do its job faster and more efficiently. Exactly. Yeah, in a natural process, so about 1% of the carbon is stored if if the tree just dies and, and things like these, and, and we're able to store over 50, 50%. So we're 50x faster per cycle. Wow. And now when you're thinking of in in the carbon problem, you have to be thinking of 100-year time span plus. And it's very hard sometimes to be thinking of those things. And, and then you can see that, okay, it's the forest will grow back, but the forest can't grow over its land mass size. So if you have a forest that's a hectare today, it's going to be a hectare in 100 years. And it's going to be a hectare in 500 years, hopefully, but it's not going to grow 10 times taller or something like this. So that's why we need additional things to go with it that can help nature. Or mm-hmm. I, I guess we're just mimicking nature, actually. We're not, we're not doing anything better than her. She actually, nature did pyrogenic carbon already 
for tens of thousands of years, forest fires that have raged around the world that are natural, started by lightning, put out by storms, have deposited this kind of a pyrogenic carbon in the soil. And so the Great Plains, the prairie, like everywhere you have this pyrogenic carbon to some percentage of the soil. But now biochar is just doing that in a kind of safer way, like locally and more technologically, so to say. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that soil contains carbon. And the way that I understand it is when we burn fossil fuels, we're releasing a bunch of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there's basically only three places that it can go. It can stay in the atmosphere. It can get soaked up by the ocean, which turns the ocean acidic and kills ocean life, or it can go into the soil. It's a cycle and it doesn't go away for centuries. Yeah. So, you know, now that we've produced this biochar out of the biomass, where it goes next is into the soil. Yeah. And so in our case, we're we're targeting urban areas first. So urban blue-green infrastructure. So everything green you see in a city, all the trees and the perennials or rooftops have some sort of a soil mix and the urban area is very difficult for plants to grow in because they're typically short of space, short of oxygen and short of water and nutrients. So biochar can help in that way because the biochar is essentially like a mini coral reef in the soil. So it's not a fertilizer. It doesn't do anything on its own. It's more like surface area for microbes to grow on and and for things to attach themselves on. So a gram of our biochar has over 350 square meters. That's probably 3,500 square feet of, of surface area. That's one gram of it. So you can imagine what that does in the soil. And another place it's used for is is water treatment. So stormwater uh, filtration in urban areas. And a lot of people don't know this, but when stormwater hits the city, there's all sorts of micropollutants, plastics, heavy metals that, that drain with the water. And you have to filter that before it goes A, into your groundwater or B, into the nature. So carbon can again help in that that aspect and whatever we do with it eventually it'll end up in the soil that's just Mm -hmm. if you look at a long enough time span (laughs) yeah and that's the best place for it if it's in the atmosphere it's doing damage to the climate if it's in the ocean it's doing damage to the ecosystem there and if it's in the soil it's actually helping the soil and helping the plants that depend on the soil to grow which includes our food yeah and plants produce oxygen. So it's a whole cycle. I love that it's a whole system of benefit all the way down. Some of the things that I was reading, I was really surprised and now I'm all about biochar too. But like you said, it's a filter. It filters out toxins. It oxygenates the soil so that more more nutrients can grow. It helps to speed up the composting process and it can prevent runoff um, from polluting other areas. Yeah, carbon is this, I think, the sixth most abundant element in the universe. We're carbon, our food is carbon. Pretty much a lot of the stuff around us is carbon. So it's a very useful material. 
I wouldn't say that there's like this vibe around biochar sometimes that it's like a healer for everything. I'm not, (laughs) I don't think it'll act on its own, but like you said, it can help a composting process, for example, where the beneficial microbes will then latch onto the carbon. So when it goes into the ground, it's already loaded with all the good stuff. So in these kinds of processes, it can be a good sidekick or or, uh, a good help for the process, but alone it won't solve everything. Sure. But as far as the numbers go, and as far as your goal to remove a trillion, a billion, trillion tons of... Billion, yeah. Billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I saw, I think on your website, every ton of biochar you sell directly reduces over three tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Yeah. So each ton of material that we manufacture has 3.2 tons of CO2 in a stable form for a thousand years. Wow. And yeah, that's where once you've produced the biochar, that's where it goes next is you have a market in agriculture where it's sold to, I don't want to say fertilize, but to assist with the soil in the agriculture process. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the kind of holy grail of biochar. Like, how do we get this into all of the the agricultural soils? The small scale farming is a little bit easier because there's a lot of stuff that's done like with simple mechanics. I think the Great Plains type vibe is a lot more difficult. Like, how do you get something that's not a liquid or highly processed into the system? So there's a lot of challenges ahead still, but I, I can see that biochar is getting a lot more reception especially because it is such a the IPCC also highlighted it as so international panel for climate change also highlighted it as a very good tool for climate change and last November Hepburn and all wrote a paper in nature there was CO2 utilization okay so once you pull it down what do you do with it if you pull it down as a gas, it's a huge gas. Where do you store it, et cetera? Do you make a fuel out of it? If you make a fuel out of it, it's put back into the atmosphere. So what are the actual ways that we can actually store carbon dioxide? And that's where I think biochar is like super elegant. It's just that, okay, nature already knows how to do this. Let's just like ride with this. Yeah, and we need to include agriculture in our conversation about solving the climate crisis. I think it's a huge opportunity that a lot of people miss because it's not really very exciting. But exciting or not, we have the hard reality to look at about food security. And I think yeah. the UN says we are we only have an average of 60 harvests left. Is that still true until we've depleted until we- all of our soils? Yeah, that's regionally true. I think the UK was at that level or so. I'm sure we're going to, nothing like the last minute to get stuff done. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we can solve these problems, but but yeah, definitely we need to start thinking a little bit more about how do we rig our agricultural system to also benefit the long-term, not just the very cyclical, very year-driven revenues because a lot of farmers are indebted, they have to look at those yields annually. And that's not necessarily equaling the good for the long term. And that's like the problem. But another thing that I wanted to point out is that when we're talking about climate change stuff, so basically the world should get to net zero by 2050. So that means that if we're emitting something, we also need to remove something. And in this case, 
avoiding emissions is not enough. You need to actually physically remove it from the atmosphere. And so getting to that net zero would potentially keep us off to Celsius warming. And why that's so important, if I may give a half a minute rant here, is that two Celsius might seem like super fun in Finland or where I'm from. We're like, oh, beach day, cool, two Celsius more, awesome. But two Celsius can mean eight Celsius somewhere, which means crop failure, which means no water, which means Arctic thawing, which means more methane, bad feedback loops. And our weather patterns might be reliant on these things. So it can really push us into a loop that we can't get out of. And that's why it's so critical. So to get to this two Celsius, it's highly likely that we need to like physically remove carbon from the atmosphere. And there's not that many technologies to do that. There's trees, which are awesome. And as long as we can keep on increasing our forest area, et cetera, we can store some carbon in the soil. Then we have a couple of technologies like Climeworks is working on taking CO2 from the atmosphere, drawing it down and trying to mineralize it, which is very energy intense, but they're doing like a pretty good job in Iceland. They have a couple of plants there, but then you have like direct air capture and all sorts of stuff. But then again, the question begs, what do you do with the CO2 once you've brought it down? Do you stuff it in a hole and hope that it stays there? <laughs> or what do you actually do with it? And how much does it cost? And how much energy does it take? And in this, these are the key questions that we should be asking ourselves. How much energy does it take for us to bring one ton of CO2 down? And so if that ratio is not good enough, then it doesn't really make sense. And another question is, of course, the cost, like who's going to pay for it and how much does it, does it cost? So that's where biochar really is such a neglected climate tool because one ton of manufactured good contains 3.2 tons of carbon dioxide. I don't know if any one of these other uh, systems can outdo that yet. Maybe they will in the future, good if they can. And another thing is the cost, that it's so cost competitive with anything out there already. And this is why I think it's ludicrous that we're not looking at this option. And I think that somebody will come and take the market in the next five years. Nice. And I think recently you were featured in Forbes and they said, considering that soil stores more carbon than all of the Earth's biomass and the atmosphere combined, and is necessary to produce 95% of our food, carboculture is a solution that we can all get on board with. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. It was about waste and how we're using it today. And I don't think anything's going to be waste in the future. Because at the end of it, if you think of like these nutshells or something, okay, they seem like waste. But the amount of energy and time that's gone into growing those things is immense and like why are we throwing that away we can just do something with it and upcycle it and turn it into another form awesome henrietta i gotta say i've learned so much about biochar just listening to you over the last few minutes i've i did watch a number of videos on the topic before the interview and even before just i, I don't know when i'm hanging out doing nothing i tend to watch climate videos on youtube call me a dork, but uh, we hang out with a lot of, of scientists and, and researchers as a creative studio working solely on, on the climate crisis. These are our clients and friends and colleagues. And usually when we talk to climate founders, their pitch, their messaging, the way that they talk is very complex. It's very confusing at times. It's full of jargon. 
And what we really appreciate about you and the work that we've seen on your website and on your Medium publication is that the messaging that you have is really tight. It's really simple. It's really to the point. And I'm going to call out a few examples. Uh, I think your bio on your Medium account is uh, co-founder and CEO of Carver Culture, sequestering carbon and putting it to use. Love it. As Sarah mentioned earlier, there's another phrase you use, we clean the air to heal the soils. And even just an analogy that you used a few minutes ago, using an example like, it's like coral reef. We all know what that looks like. Okay, so we have an idea of what, oh, okay, coral reef, it's like that, but for the soil, it captures all the stuff in the little nooks and crannies of it. Another thing uh, that you have on the website, I think this is on your homepage, sequestering CO2 for over a thousand years. And so we really appreciate that direct to the point messaging. And where did this come from? Did you always start out this way, knowing that this was probably a very complex thing to talk about? Or was it, did you have to practice getting to that phase where you needed to move away from the complex and sciencey jargon to something more simple? It's so cool to hear that, that you guys enjoy it because I always find myself explaining something and people might look at me after 10 minutes, what are you doing? <laughs> but my co-founder, Chris Carstens, he's amazing. He's a, a mechanical engineer who's been concerned about the climate for probably 15, 20 years already and, and been looking at all sorts of stuff. And he comes up with a lot of these things that are, I think he tries to simplify what the mathematics and everything that's going on in his head for me, <laughs> he's, look, this is the big picture and this is what we're doing. And so somehow able to sometimes tie those little nuggets out of there. <laughs> and also our team member, Charlotte, has been just phenomenal. She jumped on board from totally other stuff and started pulling our back end together. And, uh, and she's had to learn the everything that we're doing from scratch. So I think uh, that's why a lot of the messaging as well is is a little bit more clear because somebody's had to learn it uh, the hard way. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a lot to say about that. Bringing on someone with fresh eyes or who isn't really deep in the trenches when it comes to the science, when it comes to all the terminology and jargon, having someone come in with fresh eyeballs to to yeah, translate it in a way that makes sense not only to them, but to turn around and make it make sense to the people that are going to be you're going to be interacting with, whether they're potential funders, yeah. audience, customers, etc. Yeah, we just got our lab lab tests back and stuff like that, and when we saw in the lab tests that it was our materials stay stable for one thousand years to one million years, we said, okay, we have to start communicating this. This is so cool. And something that a lot of other people can't do. Yeah. And even just you saying, this is so cool. I think one thing that we love to see are those cool things in the climate crisis, like those, the solutions and approaches that excites people. That's, that rallies people behind whatever it is that people are working on. I think there's an element of reminiscing to really cool sci-fi movies, Star Trek, Star Wars, we're starting to see these technologies come in place. And I am all about highlighting the coolness of these approaches and solutions. Yeah. And enthusiasm helps a lot too. I think nobody gets excited about reading about soil, but we get excited about somebody who's really excited about soil. 
I have to disagree because, so there's this really cool professor in UC Davis is called Sanjay Parikh, and he actually wrote a cartoon of soil to, to try to explain how cool it is. <laughs> and when I read this cartoon, I was like, holy moly. So soil, like, first of all, all land-based life is entirely dependent on soil and every form of life that ever exists on top of land also ends up in the soil it's amazing <laughs> it's like this full circle of life that i never really understood or appreciated so yeah it's pretty cool is, yeah, is that, a... that enthusiasm is what sells the story mm-hmm. and that that graphic interface putting it in some sort of a, a comic strip medium that anyone can relate to. We've all read comics and, and enjoyed comics. And again, we're, we're all about translating very complex science jargon into ways that people can get behind and understand and then do something about it. And so I'm wondering how many young people you're inspiring or people in this particular industry are inspiring because they're understanding it and they get excited about it and they realize that it's not that hard of a of an approach. It's, it's very natural and anyone can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe this is a good opportunity to ask you about your background. How did you even get started in doing this? Did you read that comic as a young, as a young woman? (laughs) No, I was actually doing totally other stuff. I've been in environment all my life or like living in I was born and brought up in Finland it's very forested I'm a sea scout I've been very close to nature all my life and as a kind of captain for the scouts as well I've seen how the Baltic Sea for example has totally deteriorated during my lifetime but I was doing other stuff I was just starting we were doing conferences tech conferences science stuff we did programming workshops for women one of them rails girls has now been to 300 cities on all continents around the world so all sorts of i was just starting stuff and some of it by accident and some of it more by consciously and then i ended up in this place called singularity university it was like back in the days it was a very cool nerd camp it was three months super intense at nasa moffett field in california in the research side, not in the high-tech side, unfortunately, but in any case, (laughs) it was a three-month super intense camp where I met my co-founder, Chris Carstens, who's this loud, tall British-American engineer. And we had to start solving some of the world's biggest challenges by using technology as a leverage. And so we decided to focus on the climate crisis because we thought that it's going to make all the other problems a lot worse as well when you're thinking about global health, global water security, global and all sorts of issues. So so really, and it's been close to my heart. So we decided to focus on that. And my co-founder had been looking at all sorts of climate technologies for the past 15 years and just thought that this is a really elegant solution to start working on. So you weren't a soil scientist to start with or anything like that? No, absolutely not. I'm a business school dropout, very bad in that sense. I, I wish I had studied more physics and, and chemistry and stuff like that. I was pretty good at them at school, but in any case, I thought I was going to change the world by doing international relations or diplomacy or something like this, peacekeeping. But I, I interned for the foreign ministry in Finland and they told me, it's a very slow place. Are you sure you want to 
be here or it's a very long career trajectory let's say that and I was in a fun fun location in the ministry where we were bringing in international guests and stuff like that so it was very good for my kind of personality but it became really clear that maybe I need something different and I ended up in just university entrepreneurship club sort of thing from the Alto University and and it was a bunch of kids who we were just doing projects and and not asking for permission and starting stuff and it was very contagious we had all sorts of cool startup people come over and we brought Steve Blank from Stanford and stuff like this so we were like soaked in this startup juice and an entrepreneurship just looked like the right kind of tool there's a lot of different tools out there my my husband works for government and and when he does something he can affect the life of millions of people immediately but that's not my tool my tool is entrepreneurship so there's different kinds of ways and and this was my path at least for now yeah i think that's really cool and i think there might be a lot of people listening to this who are entrepreneurial and care about climate and get discouraged when they hear about these climate solutions that are very science heavy But we just walked through the science at a high level of biochar, and none of us are scientists by any means. Anyone can do this. And I think that's the thing that I really want people to take away from this is that there are some amazing solutions out there. You can gain the expertise as you go. You can just jump in as an entrepreneur and you'll learn what you need to know and you'll build a team and you don't have to do it all alone, but you can start from where you are right now. And everybody can do something to work on this crisis. Yeah. And four four years ago or something, I was presenting at a scientific conference and I like totally embarrassed myself because I couldn't, I couldn't answer any of the questions that the older scientists were posing to me. And I was, it was, I, I had like nightmares about that situation for years after, but Hey, that's like part of it. I've devoted now my past years to do this project and and then you learn as you go and know there's stuff that we are discovering as a company that nobody has discovered before like nobody in science and that's the cool thing when you can actually be at the front lines where you're like okay even you guys don't know about this so why don't we just look into this together yeah and I love that too the way that I talk about it with people it's because this climate crisis is a very new, we've never done that. We've never had this crisis before. We've never had this challenge before. And there is no guidebook, rule book somewhere on some mountaintop with all the answers. And we need to figure out how to do this now, but also just we need to start. <laughs> we don't have time to, yeah. to crunch the numbers and, and do all the things in the studio before we, we set forth and, and practice whatever it is that we're doing. And so we're probably going to screw up a few times. We're probably going to fail a few times. We're probably going to not have all the right answers right off the bat. But through that failure, obviously, and I sound cliche right now, but through all this failure, we're going to learn so much. And so I just love how hearing your story about you just saying, hey, I don't know, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to just keep going and move on and uh, yeah, and see what else I can learn and what else I can share with other people. Yeah, definitely. Perfect is the enemy of just getting stuff done. So if, if we were evaluating all the bad sides about biochar and stuff like that, we would probably still not have a company and not be doing these things. So yeah, yesterday was a good time to start something. (laughs) Nice. Love it. 
Yeah, what's what's in the future for carboculture? Yeah, good question. Uh, a lot of stuff. So we're planning a scaled up facility. So right now we're running something that's demo size. It's not profitable yet. So two things that we believe the climate crisis, or at least in our part, what needs to happen is one, it needs we need to leverage biology to get that massive drawdown. And two is it needs to be profitable. So right now we need to scale up our system so that we can get to a means of breaking even. And then from there, scaling out and, and replicating our success. So really that's what we're all eyes focused on right now. We're looking at funding and hiring at how do we build this massive system that, that we haven't done before. And it's exciting. And at the same time, <laughs> it's quite, quite a big thing. So there's going to be a lot of things happening in Q1 2021. Very cool. Yeah. Anyone um, listening to this, if there's anything that they can do, if they want to help you, how can they find out more about what you need? Yeah. Follow us at least on Twitter at Carboculture. We're generally pretty good at answering stuff. You can also email us hello at carboculture.com. We're also on Instagram, a little bit sloppy there, but you can still write us (laughs) at Carboculture. And there's a list on our website actually it's called the carbo collective so it's not an email list per se it's actually a list of people who would be open to help us so if we're running an event in your town or if we want to reach somebody from there or we need some local help that's who we're going to reach out to so it's a little bit dormant but you can join it and we might call you up someday perfect join the community what did you call it? The Carbo Collective? Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking this time to chat with us today, Henrietta. Thanks. This was really fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. If you're one of the bold rebels doing work that addresses our climate crisis, we can help you set yourself apart and amplify your climate impact. You can learn more about us at thedetermined.co. Thanks for listening. Oh, and thanks to Ian from Fugazi for permission to use this song. If you know anyone who might enjoy this podcast, feel free to share.